Welcome to episode 7 of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holers. Hello. What fun. <laughs> nice to be back. How's nice everyone this week? Yeah. Tip-top condition. Thank Very you. happy to be back. I do enjoy these. You know, I'm learning so much. You get set a topic and you think, particularly this week, I thought, oh, I knew, know quite a lot about Evelyn Moore. But looking into this in depth so I can sort of vaguely impress you two and maybe <laughs> entertain a, a listener. It's great. It's a good, no, good set of and rules. And I've been talking to people and, you know, went to my hairdressers and we started talking about eggs and stories <laughs> and it's really nice. It's a really nice way of getting yes. other people to you can broadcast things. You know, you have to sort of know enough about something to get through your hour. But then you forget about it immediately. It's so lovely to go and do something which is really just a pleasure. Mm. Stuff you're kind of a bit interested in or didn't know you were interested in. And then actually I find myself looking up more afterwards about it, you know, because you've set yourself off on your own personal rabbit hole and it's fun. Yeah. So, Look, it's fun for us. The, the <laughs> listener may yeah. choose to differ on this point. Well, no, if they're still here, if they're listening, they do have the choice of switching off. Someone <laughs> is. In Northamptonshire, I think. We, between the two of us, Richard, we have to have one Northamptonshire listener. We all have, then, our subjects that we've been researching for the week. So we've been disappearing down our respective rabbit holes to find out all the interesting information we could. So I'm actually going to kick off myself this week and some of those people listening might feel like they need it if they can't quite cope with it all. So I'm going to be talking about pain relief oh, today. Brilliant. But it's quite an intriguing one, just thinking of the, the history or what people have actually done and how far back that goes mm -hmm. because obviously it's just a standard part of our, our lives really. But I think some of the earliest are obviously natural remedies and there's only so much we can know from if we go back before written sources, we can look at certain things, but it's quite difficult to know. We know one of the earliest is willow bark, actually, oh, yes. which was used for pain relief, which goes back to about 4000 BC in Mesopotamia. We know that that was used. How do we know that, Kat? Don't ask me that because I didn't. <laughs> well, do we have know, that. Can I say, do we know now what the element is that the chemical that's in that that is a relief? Interesting. Yes, yeah, so we do. And actually, one of them is one that we use quite a lot today. So, let's see if I can pronounce it properly acetyl salicylic acid. Aspirin. Yes which actually comes from willow bark. It's Goodness. derived from it. So it's the same compounds that was used 6,000 years ago. That's um, wonderful. Which I think is works. really, really nice. Yeah. That was the thing of, when I was a kid, we didn't have paracetamol. It hadn't been, I don't know. If Disprin, an aspirin. Do you remember it was all aspirin? Yeah. Wasn't it? yeah. yeah. So that was one of the, the first sort of really big ones. Um, 1899 was the first development of aspirin as a drug really? in itself. So that was one of the slightly better ones. So, But, you know, lots of other things. We know things like turmeric has been used a lot. Mm -hmm. um, we know India for about 1000 BC, for example. And one that I like the most, actually, is, um, do you know Utsi the Iceman? No. There's, no. This is this <laughs> ice mummy who was uh, discovered, I think, in about 1990 or so. I remember I was quite young at the time. It's one of the things that inspired me to go oh, to archaeology. I, I remember. He's in the Alps. Yes, yes that's and right. And he had a 
bit of a blow to the head or oh, something, didn't he? I was he? thinking superhero. So he was found in the in the um, the Alps, just a frozen mummy, basically. So, so a man who just died up in the Alps and just was revealed by the melting glaciers. And he actually dates back five thousand, more than five thousand years. Wow. But he had lots of things. So because his body was so well preserved, they could look at things like what he had consumed really recently. And he had actually had a particular type of mushroom that has certain sort of medicinal qualities in his system. And magic mushroom. Magic-ish mushroom. <laughs> and it was certainly. And he had various other sort of herbs and things as well. So, But he had, he was carrying some injuries, wasn't he? So yeah. he probably needed a bit of pain He relief. did, but he also had lots of ailments and, and, and sort of illnesses, medical issues. He had things like arthritis in his joints. Yeah. And one of the other types of early medicine and early pain relief is acupuncture. That's been recorded going back, I think, about 2,200 years, going back to China. Atsi, we know he had lots of problems with his joints because you could actually do MRI scans and CT scans mm. and things of his body. He has tattoos all over his body and they're, they're sort of weird lines and dots that correspond to acupressure points at Goodness. some of the places where we know that he had problems. But where was he getting, where was that coming from? The sort of village witch or something. Well, who knows? I mean, well, we don't know. I mean, so, uh, well, was there more of a kind of international exchange of ideas or something? I don't know. Either that or they are sort of, you know, certain things are, because they, if they do work, then that's that's certainly, but I think a lot of that knowledge is passed on. And I think we tend to think of these prehistoric people as, as sort of very naive and not really understanding right. pain, but actually I think they probably understood an awful lot more. Mm. And also, credit surely for. a universal truth, people in pain will do anything won't they to relieve the pain there's a lot yes. of things and i'm mean, some of the the treatments of pain that i'm quite fascinated by is trepanation oh yes which is <laughs> where you cut out a piece of the skull yeah. so like a disc or a larger part of the skull or drill holes in the skull yes um which has been used to have seen as a, as a treatment for headaches and actually relieving the pressure mm. of the brain and, and that goes back thousands of years. we've got lots of prehistoric examples going back to neolithic times there's you know thousands and thousands of examples all over the world people doing Headache, if that seems like a good idea. I, think, mm. think I know with Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who was alive in the 17th century, European figure, he had bits of his skull blown away in battle and he was addicted to trepanning as a relief. And, and obviously he wouldn't have gone back if it didn't work. Presumably, even, I mean, it seems very invasive and a drastic and a painful procedure, but it must have, to the people who received it, it must have felt like it worked, right? And, well, and I, yeah. I believe pleasurable. I wouldn't want to do it, but apparently <laughs> it is pleasurable if you do it correctly. Because it's being used all over the world. I mean, it's not just one single place. It's not a sort of... So there must be something in it, I think, if you've got it that widely used. But I think one of the things that we do tend to sort of have this idea, as I said earlier, that people don't really understand, but if you go and look at early sort of instruction books and things, even in, in England, so you've got one of my favourites is a 10th century source book called Bold's Leech Book. <laughs> which is uh, a collection, an old English collection of remedies for all sorts of illnesses and diseases. And some of them are Greek and Roman authors and some, some Anglo-Saxon ones as well. And it includes a remedy that was sent to King Alfred the Great from the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Because Alfred was very ill, he was very sickly, he had some gastrointestinal disease, we didn't quite know what it was, but this was sort of known all over the world and was sent. So they have them and, and actually some of them are really, really good. So some colleagues of mine working at the University of Nottingham actually translated one of these remedies and then reconstructed it. So they followed the instructions and made it 
and it wasn't ideal for pain relief but this particular one was uh i think it was an antibiotic treatment yeah. and it could very effectively kill mrsa as effective as any modern really? antibiotics going back the century, isn't it? which is great but then they also have these sort of supernatural things so alongside that it's you know really good treatments they got a salve that works against elves night gobbling visitors and devils i can do that i've told you something i've used that no one's had any trouble from an elf <laughs> from then on. Well, there we go. To talk terms. Just, just sort of send us your recipes. <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because that sort of religion, especially something like pain, it clearly has a sort of religious. And I think there's a lot of in religions and in Christianity as well, you know, what is pain for and what is well, sort of ideas or whether that's actually a test of faith. It's very unfashionable. Obviously, um, not today. But well, historically, the, the idea was that the, the kind of virtue that could be derived from enduring suffering. I mean, yeah. I suppose stoicism or patience or resilience, we'd, we'd, we'd admire those virtues. But I think it would be to talk about the redemptive quality of suffering would not get many takers now. But, but also, historically, though, mm, oh, yeah. isn't I mean, you'd know better than me, Richard, but different parts of the body were sort of spiritual or cerebral. I mean, the stomach was where your most evil thoughts were meant to yeah. hatch. Yeah, and your humours and your... That's it. And that's why in the most ghastly of all executions, the hanging, drawing and quartering, when you were hanged by the neck until you were unconscious and then brought back to life and disemboweled and castrated they used to burn your stomach in front of you while you were still alive because that was where the malice and and, and the treason that you were guilty of had had hatched yes not much pain killing now killing something else but not pain everything about the pain the scaffold could i have a paracetamol (laughs) 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 not gonna do much i don't think don't you date i genuinely daily give thanks that i'm born in an age where that doesn't where anesthetics yes, are available absolutely oh, yeah. Jesus available yes yeah. just so, so easily like. and, and also the ones that are safe because I mean you're looking into the history of this I mean I could talk for hours about opium and all of these mm. sort of the history of that and the impact of that but actually the fact that these are sort of quite a lot of non-addictive well it's <laughs> um, funny that treatments. because you talk about pain and you're obviously talking mainly about physical pain but I had a a great-grandfather who was madly in love with his wife, and she died young in childbirth. He was so distraught that his doctor put him on laudanum or laudanum, and he basically ended up being an an addict for the rest of his life. High as a kite. Well, actually, low as, you know, just flattened emotion. Because his grief was so unbearable. Yeah, he couldn't manage it. And I got his diaries, and anniversary of the day they met, the day they got engaged, the day she died, etc. All in there. He never got over it. Very sad story, isn't it? I remember once your department, Kat, not mine, but I talked to an archaeologist who'd worked at Stonehenge and they'd found skeletal remains of somebody from, I don't know what period it was, but a long time ago, obviously, prehistoric. And he had a tooth abscess. Yeah. The abscess that had corrupted his skull and had worked its way up into his face. And I thought, ah, mm. the hell would you live with that? What sort yeah. of... So, I mean, that's... So, when I was doing my training, I did lots of osteology and looking, especially at skulls and, and teeth, and some of those are hideous. And you could just tell how much pain there must have been in. But I think mm. there were a lot of treatments, and we tend to think they wouldn't have had them. But a lot of these herbal, medicinal, you know, they actually are quite sophisticated treatments, but we have no trace. So, and that's... Mm. We have written records or unless we have those specific, any trace, you know, pollen or they tend to not be preserved. We don't really know, but I think actually people would have had access. I actually think that your normal person living in a community in rural, wherever in Europe, had a better chance than the ones who attracted quack doctors. You know, Charles II's 
last days were completely tormented by a dozen physicians who didn't know what was wrong with him. So what was wrong with him? Well, he, it seems like he had some sort of kidney disease, but they took his hair off and burnt his scalp with hot glass. They obviously leeches and they gave him a poultice of pigeons droppings and dug up a, a sort of burial ground for animals and ground it all up and gave him that. I mean, pure torture because they couldn't bear to let the king die without a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah. At least know? they had to show they were trying. <laughs> yes. Well, that can... uh, on his last day, he woke up to apologise not having died yet. And I think he's probably <laughs> thinking about that for thoughtful. himself. Yes. <laughs> oh, good, lovely man. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because he said that and also things like for surgery, so anaesthetics, the history of anaesthetics is really interesting as well and using especially ether and, and chloroform as anaesthetics, which really starts in 1800. And ether was actually... It started out as a as more of a recreational drug, so people were using it at parties, okay. and yes. and apparently I don't know if this is true story or not, but apparently a, a doctor noticed that his his friends when they were sort of high on this ether <laughs> weren't really suspected to pain or falling down the stairs or whatever. So he thought actually that's quite quite useful. We yes. could we could employ that and use it in the <laughs> surgery. A friend of mine, I was just going to say this weekend, he just had a general anaesthetic. And he'd never had one before because often have very often, does it? But he said it was just wonderful. It was just like being switched off. Yes. He said, yeah. How you imagine the best death you could possibly have would be mm. with just being switched off? Yes. Yeah. No, I've had a few surgeries sort of like that, and you do. And, and they tend to give you some quite fun drinks before, where you, as well, you sort of feel a bit. So you, and then you sort of fall asleep and wake up and you're yes, I over. love that bit where the anaesthetist <laughs> says, Now count to 10. You think, Well, I've got that. <laughs> and then you sort of fade out at eight. Yeah, <laughs> that. Well, I had one when I was a tiny bit. I dread now that I would perhaps speak a little more freely than would be wise. As I <laughs> think it was recorded, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> oh, the <doctor>. problem. <laughs> <laughs> that must happen all the time. <laughs> I'm sure it does. But, no, it's, but it is, uh, I think, the more recent story of painkillers does get quite tragic quite quickly, and especially, as I mentioned, opium and opiates and, and all of those drugs. And it's interesting when they start being introduced. Heroin was introduced in 1898 as a cough medicine. And claimed to be Works. less that would do it. Less, yeah, <laughs> less addictive than opium, it was claimed. Well, and then are. they sort of quite quickly realised that was not, that not very the interesting. case. Well, you know, Coca-Cola, famously notoriously, yes. had the active ingredient of cocaine in it as a sort of yes. seen as sort of healthful drink. Exactly. It? So all of these things, a <laughs> lot of them really start, start like that as sort of standard treatments and recreational uses sort of growing and then becoming... Just huge. And how much is it, is it psychosomatic? Or you read about people having very painful, or what would have been a very painful childbirth, but acupuncture, they don't feel a thing. I mean, has acupuncture been proven to work? Not quite well, not at least in the way that it's it was sort of started as doing so. I think I'm not an expert on acupuncture at all, but I think the idea is that you've got these sort of energy flows through mm. the body and the needles at certain points help restore that flow so if something's mm. blocking it then it can be restored again so that's not something that anyone's ever proven that that's only that's mm. how it works there's sort of various uh, theories about what the needles are doing what sort of impact that has on the body i think so i see an acupuncturist when I, I get terrible migraines and patches and he's brilliant at it but the trouble is i'm terrified of him because with that needle he brings me a sort of cascade of migraines to sort of get rid of them, as yeah. it were. Hang on, talk me through that. So you get, do you get like cluster headaches, Charles? You yeah. got a group of migraines yeah. close together? Yeah, I don't know why. Solpity, that kind of stuff, nothing touches it. Not really. I mean, it's agony. Well, you know, people suffer far worse, but I, it's really debilitating. 
but I see the migraine acupuncturist and he puts the big one in the eye above your nose, as it were. And gosh, that is, it's not the, pe the pin, the needle's nothing. But, but it triggers but it, them. It triggers them and it's a, it's a bad day, but it, it means I probably won't have one for three weeks after that. We can try a trepanation if you like. And I've got a drill. The stone, right? Imagine oh, you're living in goodness. the 1600s and you have a kidney stone. Yeah. Do you, what people, went, there's a famous account, is it John Evelyn? I can't remember. No, it's Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys. Well, you know better than me, Charles, but this, the agony was so mm -hmm. great that you would undergo a procedure which even the doughtiest of gentlemen would wince at because yes. of the means of entry and the fun. incisions required, all without anaesthetic, yeah. and a 70% mortality. Also, those 70%, they'd have all these men ready to go in a line, and because they didn't know about bacteria, etc., they couldn't work out why the ones who had the operation first had a better success rate than the ones later. It's because they were using a dirty scalpel. That's why most of them died then. Uh, you could die of shock, of course, so in the pain. You'd, have a, you'd, you'd do a day of You'd just go in and do operation. it, yeah. Um, oh. Gosh. My God, imagine But you would that. do that because you couldn't live with the pain. So mm -hmm. it was worth a gamble. There was something I read, I can't remember it was, I think it was about this, it was the 1700s. It was a theological discussion about whether people who killed themselves as a consequence of tormenting pain were as liable to self-murder, for self-murder, um, as they would be if it hadn't yeah, been. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It's a sort a of, just can't cope anymore. Reason. I think our disembodied voice has got something to add to this discussion. Richard challenged you at the very top about the willow leaves and how we know. Archaeologists found clay tablets left by the Assyrians uh, in the Sumerian period describing the use of willow leaves for the use of pain cure. Did it have okay. a sort of dosage recommendation? <laughs> well, you, it's funny you say that, actually. The Sumerians were the first known civilization to actually register medical prescriptions for pain, according to a clay tablet from 4,000 years ago. Well, that's yeah. interesting, isn't it? It's Perfect. dangerous stuff. Isn't it? yeah. It's like heroin, so dangerous yeah. because yeah. it does work, right? Yeah. But also, I love these tree-based remedies. And Oliver Cromwell, when he was very ill, he contracted malaria, among other things, towards his end. Where did he get that? Ireland. Ireland was malarial in mm. the 17th so century. England back in Anglo-Saxon times. Yeah, but, you, you know, he refused to take quinine because it was known as the Pope's bark, and he didn't want anything <laughs> Roman, so he died. He didn't take the medicine, the only medicine they knew that might work. There is an interesting, it's a completely vanished trope now, but a trope that of the redemptive power of suffering, better to suffer the torments of the moment than to suffer eternally in hell. It was one of the reasons why heresy was punishable by burning, was that you, and why someone might resolve themselves to accept that was the idea that you would suffer torments now, mm. but you would be spared eternal torments afterwards. Mm. Gosh. Interesting. Imagine having to make that decision. I think I know which way I'd go on yeah. that. And can yeah. you imagine, I mean, that, that harrowing opening scene from Elizabeth, you know, with the Protestant being burned. Yeah. It's just the most terrible thought. You know, there were efforts to mitigate the awfulness of it by a keg of gunpowder around, gun around the neck or something. Yeah. Or, uh, the, 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 I can't remember, it was one of the Protestant masters, I can't remember which one, but son-in-law decided that he would heap faggots round the pyre to accelerate the death, but it was green wood and it in fact <laughs> retarded oh, it. And, yay, yay, yay. I mean, you would hope, I imagine, that smoke would overwhelm you before the flames did, but there were other methods of doing it where they would lower the body into the flames to make sure that the work was done. Oh. In Florence, they would strangle you first. So Savonarola, for instance, was burned for heresy, but he was strangled first. Imagine being pleased you're being strangled. Well, I, so I remember reading about one of the Medici was assassinated and the assassin was caught and the rest of the Medicis had the assassin skinned alive and then thrown into a room full of salt. 
Well, you'd know Ooh. that, wouldn't you? That would okay, tingle. that needs a lot of pain relief to get out of. Famous Georges Bataille, the situationist philosopher, thinker, critic, mm. he used to carry in his wallet a photograph and it was of a man being executed, a Chinese man, mm. by the death of a thousand cuts. So in still imperial Japan, where they would just chop bits off you bit by bit, but they would give the, the sufferer opium as mm. a way of sustaining the punishment. So you'd think, hooray, pain relief. Mm -hmm. uh -oh. mm. you know. Do you know which the first better. two cuts were? No. The eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. So you wouldn't know where the next ones were coming. Oh, I can't imagine that. Yeah. Why did they? Well, well, they well that's there why. We are. <laughs> yes. That's your own, because it's yeah. the most horrifically displayed yeah. power, right? Anyway, so on that lovely night, <laughs> yes, sorry, folks. we're going to have to move on a little bit, but I do have to share my favourite facts, which actually is something that relates to a type of pain that neither of you have ever had to go through and, and will never, which is to do with childbirth and the use of anaesthetics, because in the 19th century, because it was always thought that you know, that was just one of those things that you had to endure and, and there was no no sort of reason to, to try and do anything about it, but an obstetrician suggested using chloroform as pain relief in childbirth and one of the first people to use chloroform in childbirth do you know who that was in no. the 19th century it's queen victoria oh, oh yes because it wasn't very popular but she sort of off her head said, you know, <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i can't imagine i've seen a childbirth cat you've I, seen one but i remember thinking well i think that's so probably better than to, going so glad through i don't it. have to do it it's just extraordinary the work involved yes the, it is exhausting how you get from the beginning of that to the end of that and everyone's okay it's amazing and Incredible, then you sort of forget and you, you do agree to do it again that's the biggest conundrum well <laughs> i wonder about that is there some hormone do you think that... yes definitely i mean that that is why all those hormones are being released when you sort of see you otherwise how would anybody ever want that baby that caused all that pain and agony <laughs> for you know days um, but you are flooded with hormones to just make you feel happy and forget about it. I had a parishioner who liked giving birth and had really? lots of children, as a yes. including yeah. twins, as a consequence. Yeah, because she just really liked the act of giving birth. My great grandmother gave birth fifteen times. Blimey. Which I don't quite understand how that's <laughs> possible anymore. But anyway, so that was all about pain relief. <laughs> on that note. So we are going to move on to Charles. So you've got the honour this week of being the first to tell us about a person rather than an object. Yes, I'm um, going to talk about Evelyn Waugh, 20th century English novelist. And actually, he converted to Catholicism and he said that child birth control was very middle class. Oh, middle class, yes. really? And this is actually the nub of Evelyn Waugh, is this innate snobbery. He saw himself as an aristocrat monkey. And this is a man who wrote 50 books. I'd read 10 of them and I thought I'd covered him. But the common denominator of them all is this incredible struggle to be upper class or, or to be a, a judge of that class. He came from a, what we consider a middle class background. His father was a publisher. His father favoured his elder brother, Evelyn's elder brother, Alec, and Evelyn Moore grew up hating them both as a result of that. He resented the fact that his elder brother was caught having a romance at Sherburn Private School. And therefore, he was sent to what he considered the lesser school of Lansing. So this is a man who, as a boy, has this sense of being excluded from the right circles and being cast out. He, he ends up actually being a terrible father himself. I mean, a really brutal father. There's a story about him and his six surviving children. He has seven, but six lived into proper childhood, as it were. And 
he sat them down. There was a time of rationing after the Second World War where all the children were given a banana. It was a sort of little bit of a bonanza for the nation. And even more sat his six children down so they could watch him eating their six bananas. He had one daughter he really liked, but in, in a letter he wrote, my unhealthy affection for my second daughter has waned. Now I despise all my seven children equally. This is a very unpleasant man by huge popular judgment at the time. People didn't like him, but he wrote like a god. He wrote these incredibly, they're satires, very dialogue-based satires. They're brilliant. Graham Greene, his rough contemporary, considered him the greatest novelist of his era. He himself looked up to P.G. Woodhouse as the master, but he had these bitingly tight little judgments, very waspish, and, and one of them was, in one of his novels, he writes about somebody being gifted with the sly, sharp instinct for self-preservation that passes for wisdom among the rich. And this is him. This is the nasty him. And he liked to look down on people as being bourgeois because he considered himself bourgeois, and he didn't like that. He found that a, an ugliness. And he'd write little things such as punctuality is the virtue of the board. So there he is in this sort of rather bizarre space of smug, nasty judgment of others. But he writes some of the great books. There's a trilogy on the Second World War, which many consider, if you take it as a whole, as the greatest novel in the English language of World War II. And it was based on him, this rather unathletic, unassuming small man ends up as a 33-year-old volunteering to join the Royal Marines and is very brave in the war, but is deeply disliked. His men hate him. His fellow officers like, don't like him either. But he writes these beautiful books. And there's one I happened to read at the time when COVID was starting to bite. And it's incredible to read uh, Put Out More Flags. Mm -hmm. It was about the beginning of the Second World War and the sort of the sham operators taking advantage of it, such as we saw with people selling on medical equipment at hugely inflated prices. You see human spirit in its nastiest and ugliest form and wore a lighting on it with this incredible eye and this unbelievable turn of phrase. A it's very, a, very clever man. It's a wonderful prose writer of, well, of it's the 20th century. It's, it's, it's faultless and it's so beautiful. And if you look at the original manuscripts, which he did in hand, you can see how he chiseled away, chiseled away, and you can almost feel his anger as he hasn't quite got it right and then getting it right. So it's rather like Edward St. Aubin now. Every sentence you read has a perfection to it and you can't imagine it any other way. His most famous book, I suppose, is Brideshead Revisited. We always look back. You know, It doesn't matter when we look back at people, whether it's Laurel and Hardy or Evelyn Moore. They had huge periods where they were totally out of fashion and struggled professionally but we look back on his canon of works as a sort of one success after the other it wasn't like that at all and it was really in 1981 when ITV televised Brideshead that he had a resurgence he was really you know writing about the upper classes was not really for a very long time considered either funny or interesting and he himself sank into a depressed life with an enormous amount of alcohol and, and he kept his diary from the age of seven till just before he died in his early 60s. And there's one night where he drinks three bottles of champagne and a bottle of cognac. He's also taking prescription drugs and he's a bit of a mess and he's an ogre and he's living this parallel life to his wife, his second wife and his children. He certainly was gay when he was at Oxford, a couple of well-known romances that he had there. 
the main one with a, a lord son called Anthony Graham, who is the origins on which he based Sebastian Flight, the doomed heroic figure in Brideshead. And actually in his manuscripts, he messes up Sebastian's name with Alistair a couple of times. He gets out of his, probably his natural proclivities of being homosexual. He thinks it's, he won't be accepted by the aristocracy if this happens. <laughs> like so, they bothered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he married an honourable, a girl who was an honourable, also called Evelyn. People called her Shevelyn to distinguish the two. <laughs> that was a disaster in the bedroom. And she has a very public affair and goes off. This is the spur for one of his great novels, A Handful of Dust. That's his greatest novel, I think. I think it is. Yeah. But actually, you remember the, uh, at the end of A Handful of Dust, what is the curse that the man has to put up with? Having to read Dickens to yes. that awful fellow in the jungle. Yes. Yeah. So his job mm. is compulsorily to read Dickens. Uh, and that resonates with his childhood. It's a dig Chapman at his father because his father used to read Dickens to him as a boy. And it's a sort of, he resents everything and everyone. And he's a thoroughly unpleasant well, man. What's so interesting, isn't it, about how a life that is devoted to bitterness and mm. disappointment, mm. how allied to this extraordinary thing. One of the it gives me is that unflinching eye. And I think he can look at stuff and write stuff that others would have just shied away from. This mm. was simply too. Awful. I mean, I, I I love his writing, Charles, yes. but I find him pretty toxic, actually. He's a horrible man. He retreats into this life of a squire in a big house and disengaging from the world. And so we see him in his later years, really through his letters. And one of his friends, one of his correspondents, is Nancy Mitford. And she's so appalled by his bullying, he reduces somebody she likes to tears. And she writes to him, "'How could you be so wicked? I thought you were supposed to be religious.'" And he replies, you can't imagine how much worse I should be if I were not. Well, point. Yeah. This is where I part company with you. Because the point for me where I think, actually, no, I think there's something bogus about his conversion. I don't oh. buy it, actually. And I find his kind of paraded Catholicism in his letters, but especially in his novels. What Brian said for me is the point where I just... Doesn't ring true, to, does it? I just think there is something... I don't think... He was interested in surrendering himself. I think Catholicism worked for him as a sort of guarantor of what he already thought and was. I don't think he gave himself to it. Monsignor Gilby, who knew him, I knew a bit, Alfred Gilby, who was well, a famous figure, Catholic priest, I think thought the same thing. There was something bogus about his conversion. All the biographies I've read about him, nobody can understand his reason for becoming Catholic. You know, was it a snobbery? Did he want to attach himself to some very old English families? But he's he finds snobbery inside the Catholic Church. You know, when the Second Vatican Council allows non-Latin to be used, he thinks this is frightfully common. And there's a sort of um, a theme, even in his religious life, of being a, a snob. My mother's godfather was a friend of his, and he was a diplomat in Ethiopia, and Evelyn Wall came to stay. And I remember Sadie, his wife, saying that he was the most unpleasant person. Not just unpleasant, but just slovenly, never did anything. Mm. He was just antisocial in kind of every way in which he could be unpleasant, he was. And I thought, a man of considerable gifts, trying very hard to be unpleasant. What's that about? I think he hated himself, by the yeah. sounds of things. So he made himself as unlikable as he could be to fulfil his own judgment of himself. If I thought there was a better kind of greater work than Handful of Dust, it would be The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold. Yeah, and he wrote that when he was in full alcoholic, hallucinogenic mode. On Brideshead, you know, when it became a, 
an international success. He, he's also xenophobic. He writes, my book has been a great success in the US, which is upsetting because I thought it in good taste. And now I know it can't be. So he's nasty about whole races. You know? But you... he's also unsparing to himself. And the ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold, clearly Gilbert Pinfold is himself. And he is very, very clear-sighted about his own mm. awfulness, if that's a redemptive quality. When you know this much about a person like this, when you know what an actually an awful man he was in many mm. ways, mm. does it affect how you feel reading the books and your enjoyment of the books? Can you still... Well, I often have this thing. I mean, way. can you can you enjoy a Michael Jackson song? I don't know. I mean, all of his deeply unpleasant traits were not criminal, but he does write about himself. He writes about his friends, and it takes a particular sort of person. I enjoy his prose, but I suppose there is always that I'm enjoying something from a not very nice man. I adore the music dramas of Wagner. Yes. Who was probably the most one of the most unpleasant men of the nineteenth century, I call it that. But I think time, doesn't it, allows you to put a bit of distance between the person and what they do. And of course, we're interested in his novels. We're not really interested in, in him. And as time goes by, he will become more indistinct and the novels you hope will continue to have. So some life. things he's such a genius at. There is in this handful of dust, which is about a man whose wife has a public affair and he's humiliated, etc. You have a very distinct picture of exactly what the lover is like. And yet there's not one word of description of that man. Oh, you know who it's he just is. dialogue. Perfect. Yeah. I remember it's in Decline and Fall, which is his first novel, which is an absolute master. I mean, what a debut. It's just dazzling. Mm. And there's a line in that where somebody says something which doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. What a big orange. I mean, it's the simplest line. But who says it and when they say it and where they say it? Mm. It's one of the funniest lines in English literature. And I remember once really, I made friends with somebody because I overheard him at dinner once say, what a big orange. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And we looked at each other, we both went, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that. Yes. But... So finally then, Charles, favourite fact? Well, my favourite fact is entirely self-indulgent. It is that the very last letter he wrote, he died on Easter Day in 1966, age 60, 61, 62 or something, was to my literary agent, who was a young boy working for a publisher, giving him an absolute bollocking about something. And I thought that is so typical. He wrote it to the nicest, most gentle man I know from this, I'm sorry, but horrendous figure. There's something incredibly poetic about his final words of horror being addressed to such a lovely man as Gillen Aitken. He died on the loo. Oh, really? Yeah, lots of people do. Heart thing. Well, I think a strain. Too many bananas. Too many bananas. Too many bananas. <laughs> Charles Evelyn War was 62 when he died, and uh, the cause of death was said to be coronary thrombosis. However, Graham Greene believed that war had drowned in the lavatory, Goodness. and he would go around telling people that he had been found with water in his lungs. Goodness. Mm. Was, yeah. He didn't drink much water in his... <laughs> <laughs> it was mainly cognac, I think. So Certainly goodness, not out of a bowl, anyway. Yes. yes. <laughs> On that note, that's me. <laughs> I give it to you this time, Richard. So thanks for that, Charles. Now, Richard, this is really part of your trademark, isn't it? Your topic this week. So you are going to talk to us about the weird and wonderful world of dachshunds. Dachshunds, yes. I think the 12th most popular breed, according to the American Kennel Club. I suspect they've climbed that ladder, actually, because... Uh, well, one of the things that happened in lockdown was that lots of people got dogs and the kind of dogs they were getting were the Dachshund, that famously cute sausage dog beloved of so many. Those of you who know sausage dogs or know people with sausage dogs will understand that they are more complex creatures than the sort of caricature of them would allow. I have to admit here that I have had 
I think, 14 Dachshunds Gosh, over that's the years. Lot. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm down to two very old, very grumpy ones now. <laughs> but I am, well, the first dog ever was a little boy was a Dachshund, and I've had Dachshunds ever since. Where are they from? What are they all about? Well, the Simpsons, nobody really knows. You associate them, of course, with Germany mm. and Austria. There are so much a symbol of Germany. In the Munich Olympics, the first ever Olympic mascot was a Dachshund. And did you know that the marathon course in Munich in 1972 was in the shape of a Dachshund? I was going to say, it's the Dachshund ran it, which I thought would take a while. But The shape, of course, is the thing. They are highly unusual dogs. They are long and they are low. Can I tell you my joke? Yes. Okay. Um, what's the difference between a Dachshund and a street trader? A street trader balls out his wares on the pavement. <laughs> <laughs> I leave that with you. That's very, very good. good. Very good. Long and low, which of course makes them cute yes. and makes them easily caricaturable. But they were they're hunting dogs. Yeah. Dax hunt means badger hound. Yeah. And they were bred originally to go after badgers and after rabbits and after burrow dwelling creatures. Long and low, so they've got a big chest capacity so they can take a big lungful of breath before they go down a hole. An erect tail, mm -hmm. so you could see them in long grass, also so you could haul them out of the hole by the tail when they've gone after their prey. And Big, big front paws. Because Very brave, diggers. taking on a badger. I mean, a badger is a ferocious thing, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, surely a badger yeah. would win in a fight. A cornered badger could give you a big fight, but they, they don't know they're small, of course. And oh, Dachshunds, yes. they think. I mean, there's Dachshund-like creatures, long, low dogs, obviously bred for hunting. There's evident, well, archaeologists have, been, have found them in ancient Egypt, so... They're very widespread and very common. I, one of the biggest surprises I ever had was I visited the monastery of Doe Sutep in northern Thailand. Dachshunds galore scampering around. It's a sacred enclave. Don't know why, but it just was the case. So you find them everywhere. So obviously they're useful. They think that they came about with a pincher and that they bred miniaturism into the pincher to make them this shape, long and low. They used to have longer legs than we used to having them now. The most famous stories about Dachshund, of course, was in the First World War. They were already popularised by the sort of 1850s, 1860s, and then became enormously popular. And then in the First World War, they were so much associated with Germany that they were notorious cases of people literally turning on Dachshunds and trampling them to death because they were oh seen so much as a kind of symbol of hated Germany. And Dachshund breeders, sort of, there was one report of a Dachshund breeder in America, I think this was in 1917, shooting all the accents because he felt that it was either something he didn't want to do because it was a kind of something associated with Germany or that it was such a potential inhibitor of trade that it would make sense for him to do that. Well, I've got a second World War Dachshund story. So uh, one of my closest friends, they have always had Dachshunds since the 40s. His father was in a tank in the Second World War and saw a wild boar burst out run, then drop to its front legs and then expire. And it had Dachshund attached to its windpipe yeah. that had actually won that battle with the wild boar. He scooped it up and took it in his tank, was later taken prisoner of war by the Germans who allowed him to keep the dog. And they've got the continuous line from that very brave Dachshund now. Oh, really? Yeah, Amazing. still going. A doughty little Dax. You know, when miniature Dachshunds came about, you know, they're in sort of three sizes now. You get standard miniature and then a sort of, oh, we would call it a toy, although they're not very common. Mm. But miniatures were bred because of, there was an explosion in the rabbit population, I think the 1830s. And so they bred them mini so they could go chase and be like a ferret. Rabbits down mm. the rabbit hole. Yes, How very, very suitable. Appropriate. <laughs> we should yeah. have that as our mascot, the Dachshund yes. as well.
I mean, there are lots of famous people. Queen Victoria, we've talked about her a few times, haven't we? Where mm. She was a great lover of Jackson. So, of course, they retained the affection of the royal family, the queen and the queen mother. Not only had Daxons, but crossed with corgis, the dorgis that were companions for them all through through their lives. Marlon Brando, Daxons. Mm -hmm. Adele, Daxons. Deck from Anton Deck, Daxons. <laughs> There's one of those breeds. You're pulling a... I'm sensing a scepticism <laughs> here, Charles, because I know that no, you I, perhaps take a different view. I know, I do. I like the look of them. They can be quite annoying. So I've got a, a Spaniel whose best friend is a Daxons, and it's a nightmare when the two of them get together. And they tend to sort of exhaust each other and destroy everything around them because they're both totally wrapped up in this Daxon Spaniel combat. Yeah. Friendly combat, but they are quite sort of, for a very small dog, they leave a large imprint. And also for a very small dog, because they've got this big rib cage, they have a very loud bark. Yes. And because they're quite territorial, they tend to use it an awful lot. So another interesting about, and it's one of these why the whole thing about Daxons and German culture, there was a kind of pseudo-Nazi, Nazi pseudoscience of the 1930s, which claimed that Dachshunds were exceptionally intelligent dogs and that were capable of understanding human intercourse, if you see what I mean. And there was in Weimar, Germany, there was a countess whose name I can't remember, she's a mad aristocrat, perhaps a disembodied voice would look this up. But she had a famous Dachshund, Courvenal, after the character from the Wagner opera. And Courvenal was an exceptionally gifted dog with whom she would converse. And the dog had learned to reply to her by barking the equivalent number of barks to the letter in the alphabet, which is a rather laborious way of going about things. But anyway, the dog had pronounced opinions on things, including once when she was visited by a deputation from Hitler Youth, saying that he was going to vote for Hindenburg rather than Hitler <laughs> if the franchise were extended to Daxons. So you've talked about famous people having one now. Are there paintings from the past with a Dachshund in? I can't think of any. And well, Bonnard, there's a painting... I, well, I'm, going, I'm not going back that far. Picasso, of course, he had a very famous... I think it was called Lumpy, his Dachshund. And he, David Hockney, I mean, again... Stanley and Stanley, Bougie. Yes. Andy Warhol, he too had Dachshunds. I, think I met it, Stanley, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, he was quite spoiled. In, was this in Los in Angeles? Ella, yes. Yeah. 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 I went to interview Hockney for something, and this famous dog was bounding around. A celebrity dog, you know. He was in the world. Well, works there was well. the Tatler Dachshund, of course. Famous Dachshund lived at Tatler very recently, but unfortunately got trapped in a revolving door and didn't survive oh, no. that Yikes. encounter, That's I'm afraid. It was, it was awful. Why do they look cute? What is it about the Daxon that looks cute? I'm not sure. Well, it's the sleekness, isn't it? I think the coat is a big deal. I think it's also and the black and tan's very nice. The sausage shape. It's something, the something about slightly ridiculous shape, but it's sort of in a sweet but did ridiculous you know, shape. Did you know <laughs> that's where hot dog comes from? The hot dogs were first sold by German emigres, and this was at the Chicago Exposition of, I think it was 1896, 1893, something like that, I think 1896. And uh, there was a German Wurstseller seller there who was selling sausages and they got long and long in the mm. end he used to his sort of brand thing was a sausage was like a dachshund and they were called hot dachshunds and that became hot dax oh and that became oh, hot dog hot i know that dog. sounds too good to be true mm. but i found it on the internet so it must be true <laughs> okay but it is something that's, that's the sort of trope you see now is the dachshund in a bun with sort of mm -hmm. mustard down yes. his back you can get dachshund coats like that yes oh that's very good so I think we have a comment on, on all of this, actually, it, from our disembodied voice. Finally doing some work. Yeah. It was 1893 at the World's Columbia Exposition in Chicago. And your point about the uh, German owner 
of the dog Kervenal. Her name was Baroness Mathilde von Freytag Loringhoven. And she was bananas, right? I have no further <laughs> I think comment. the dog has its own tomb now, something that's of Daxons. Of... It does have its own tomb. And on the, the epitaph on his tombstone, translated from German, reads, Kervenal, the wisest and noblest of all dogs, the world-famous mathematician, mm. thinker, and writer. She loved her dog. Right. <laughs> Another thing, you that. that the Daxons might have kind of contributed to the precipitation of the First World War. Mm. Another famous Dachshund owner was Kaiser Bill, Wilhelm II, who had oh, yeah. two fierce little Dachshunds. And he went, uh, once went to visit Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was later, of course, murdered in Sarajevo, which did contribute to the beginning of the First World War. And the Archduke, who was then heir presumptive, I think, to the thrones of Austria and Hungary, kept golden pheasants. He loved his golden pheasants and he bred his golden pheasants. Oh, this isn't going to end Kaiser well. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Let the taxons out. Boom. They ate the golden pheasants and shredded them before the distressed archduke's oh, really? eyes. That would be a lot, wouldn't mm. it, to put up with? It probably had clipped the wings so they couldn't fly as well. There you go. So these poor old... Imagine... Tim, your peacock, being pursued by a dachshund, it wouldn't be... I'd be very upset. Well, you would, but, but I mean, it didn't, it didn't do anything to kind of smooth relations between what were later to become combatant forces. What's your favourite ever dachshund of yours, and what was so mm. special about that one? Well, I am lucky to... The, the one I have now is Pongo. So Pongo is the best dog I've ever had. And it's hard to say why, because he's thick as mints, he's noisy, <laughs> he's untrainable, but there is something about him that is just adorable. And yeah. I love To you, him. or do people all love him when they meet him? People who like dogs will like Pongo, yeah, even though he's extremely noisy mm. and barks at strangers mm. an awful lot as we bark to you. And does he love you? Yeah, he does. So he is... Uh, the two I have now are Pongo and Daisy, and Daisy was David's, really, and Daisy yes. not interested in me at all. And when David died, one of the most heartbreaking... Whenever he went on a walk, she'd just constantly look over her oh, shoulder no. or refuse so to sad. go because she got yes. sloppy seconds with me. Oh, no. And she now sort of... She kind of accepts me now, but they are... One of the things that I think where people form quite deep attachment to them is that mm. they are extremely loyal. Mm. Mm. And if you're a... You know, if you're a writer or a vicar mm. or someone who's around a lot, to have your Dachshund with you is a great thing. Well, you've converted me very much. Oh, they sound lovely. Yeah, right. Do you want my best Dachshund fact? Yes. Yes, please. Imagine, if you will, the Reverend Professor Sir Ian Torrance, mm -hmm. former moderator of the Church of Scotland, former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, pro-chancellor of the University of Aberdeen, one of the great and most eminent theologians and churchmen and national figures of Scotland. Well, when he was given a knighthood, he was given a grant of arms. You know more about this than I do, Charles. Mm -hmm. But it's unusual to have supporters, but because he was so prestigious and so highly thought of, he was allowed to have supporters by whoever does that in Scotland. You know, support, I mean, like the lion and the unicorn, the mm -hmm. heraldic beasts. And if you look at Ian's coat of arms, you will see that his heraldic support, think, what are those exactly? They're his Daxons, Maud and Cassie. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. I love that a lot. I think I've won this one. Well, Certainly better than mine. Have a look, I suppose. We've got <laughs> to that yours was very point good. now. Yeah, I know, yours was excellent. Our disembodied voice will completely undemocratically choose a winner. And I think Richard is just looking eagerly towards him. The winner's so... cat. It, <laughs> it, it would have been you, Richard, but you chose to ignore the fact that Picasso, Andy Warhol, Carol Lombard, Cary Grant and JFK were all Dachshund owners, and you chose to mention Ant from Ant and Deck. <laughs> it was Deck. It was Deck. It's Deck, not Ant. It's Deck. Unless of a Ant or Deck. Yeah, one of them, whichever. 
JFK. I've sold a lot of albums. JFK. <laughs> JFK. Yeah. So what? Marlon Brando, I got him in. Well, I think you did very well. I'm happy to share it. No, no, I, no, no, no I think no, asking no. to Just... win is a disqualifier anyway. Yeah. I don't, you know, it's... You don't care about winning and losing. I know that anyway, Richard. It's well, not your thing. I don't care about winning and losing. That's true. And also, yeah. you know, we live in an age when perhaps, you know, fair outcomes are a bit of a thing of the past. <laughs> Just... <laughs> What are you saying? <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to leave that Hang there. on a minute. Leave yeah, let's, let's leave that one. I'll, I'll, I'll send my Labradoodle off to your Daxon. Have you got a Labradoodle? I have got a Labradoodle. So we've finished for today, I think. So we've had our topics. We've had our winner. Yes, and that's you, Kat. Just, yeah, just, just, I just want to mention, just in case somebody missed that back. Yeah. in that conversation. I mean, it's, obviously, it's between the two of you. Everyone knows that. <laughs> but it was you this time. One day, one day, Richard. <laughs> Um, well, he has won one. Yeah, yeah one. It's a one. Like, grotesque consolation prize because <laughs> the disembodied voice was feeling pity that day. Before we go, we have to reveal next week's subject. So I think we've now decided, Charles, <laughs> you are going to be talking about umbrellas. Fantastic. How suitable. Richard, Dalius. Dalius. And I going to dive into the murky world of crime fiction. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of The Rabbit Hole Detectives. Do please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. So you can also let us know if you've got any favourite interesting rabbit holes that you would like us to fall into in future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. And in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, the uninformed must improve their deficit or die. Oh, yes. Mm, and yes. some of that. Yeah, that. Good way to say <laughs> goodbye, isn't it? Yes. Punchy.